Keep your Bibles open to that passage in Luke. The passage which was just read will be our text this morning, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. Now the title for this sermon, Jesus Saves a Sinful Woman. Jesus Saves a Sinful Woman. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we have an account of the prophet Nathan being sent by God to King David to tell David a story that outraged his natural judgment. When King David heard the story that Nathan told him, he was outraged at the unjust actions of the man in the story. And he said to the prophet Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And then the prophet Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Jesus did something similar in our text this morning. Jesus used a very simple illustration that appealed to the natural judgment of this man named Simon. And when Simon had passed judgment, Jesus turned this illustration like a mirror to reflect the visage of the inner man to those who were present on this occasion. And though it has been 2,000 years, the force of the illustration is not diminished. Just as Jesus' words brought conviction and comfort to those who were present when they were first spoken, they bring conviction and comfort to us. As we look at this passage, may each one of us carefully consider what is revealed here about our own hearts. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray that as we read earlier all those scriptures talking about you working through your word, Lord, we pray that would be true here this morning. We pray that you would do a work by the Holy Spirit through your word in each one of our hearts this morning. Draw us to you. Conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we go forward to honor and to glorify you, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, consider the people who are involved in this account. And the central figure in this account is Jesus. It's an account of events in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus was invited to this meal. Jesus attended this meal. Jesus was ministered to by this woman. Jesus gave a parable or illustration, and then Jesus applied the truth that was taught in that parable. I want to draw your attention particularly to two doubts that were raised concerning Jesus in this account. And the first is found in the middle of verse 39. If he were a prophet, if he were a prophet, who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Does he have the information that a prophet should have? Does he act like a prophet? In this text, we see doubt about Jesus' legitimacy as a prophet. And the second question is found down near the end in verse 49. Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Jesus had just announced something shocking. He had said to this notably sinful woman, maybe even a notoriously sinful woman, that her sins were forgiven. And when Jesus said that, it led to this question about Jesus. Those who were present said, Who is this that forgiveth sins? As we go through this text, we will look for answers to these questions and doubts about Jesus. The next key figure in this account is Simon the Pharisee. We are introduced to him in verse 36 as one of the Pharisees. We're given his name down in verse 40, Simon. And what do we know about this man? Well, first, he was a Pharisee. 
He was part of this strict, conservative, zealous sect of the Jews. We talked about the Pharisees last week. Their name, Pharisee, comes from the word which means separated. They were separated from the common Jewish people by manner of life. They were very interested in the formal keeping of the law. And they became proud and self-righteous. They were more concerned about their appearance before men than their righteousness before God. And because of this, they were often strongly rebuked by Jesus. We saw one of those strong rebukes last week in verses 31 through 35. We also know that Simon was a man of at least some wealth. He had invited Jesus to this meal, which appears to have been some sort of banquet. It would have been a fairly expensive meal and not something that was routine for a person of normal means. Also, this meal was held at Simon's house, as we are told in verse 36. And so we know Simon must have been a man of at least moderate means to host a meal, as is described in this text. And then we see that Simon had doubts about Jesus. This is not too surprising. Remember, Simon is a Pharisee. And although this is relatively early on in Jesus' ministry, there is already strong disagreement between the Pharisees as a whole and Jesus. And again, we saw the rebuke that Jesus delivered to the Pharisees immediately before this text. In verses 31 through 35, Jesus has rebuked the Pharisees. And yet, Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to his home for a meal. Why? Scripture does not tell us what his motivation was, but we know he was not a believer. And we know this because of the doubts he expressed to himself in verse 39, where he says internally, This man, if he were a prophet, speaking of Jesus, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Simon did not believe that Jesus was a prophet, much less the Messiah. And finally, we're told in this account that Simon was not very hospitable to Jesus. And again, this is strange. Simon had invited Jesus to a meal at his house, but he does not show him many of the common courtesies of that culture as Jesus listed in verses 44 through 46. And Jesus attributed this lack of hospitality to a lack of love. The final key figure in this text is the sinful woman. We're introduced to her first in verse 37, where we read a woman in the city which was a sinner. We're given very little information about her, Now, there are many similarities between this account and other accounts that we find in the Gospels of times when Jesus was anointed by a woman at a feast. But there are also several key differences which indicate that this was a separate occasion and not a parallel account of one occasion. Uh, There are differences in the location, in the time, and the people involved. This is not a parallel account. This is a unique account. And as far as we know, this is the only time that this woman is mentioned in Scripture. And all that we're really told here about her is that she was a sinner. People have speculated that she may have been a prostitute. That's possible. Her sin was to some degree public. Other people knew about her sin. Simon knew about her sin. He knew her as a sinful woman. But Scripture does not specifically tell us about her sin. And we know that this woman was a believer. Because in verse 50, Jesus told her, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. We're also told that she was hospitable to Jesus in all the ways where his host Simon had not been hospitable. 
And Jesus attributed this hospitality to an abundance of love. We have Jesus, Simon the Pharisee, and the sinful woman. Those are the three main people involved in this account. Well, now let's look up at the events that lead to the teaching portion of this text, the setting, which leads to the teaching portion of this text. Verse 36 tells us that Simon the Pharisee wanted Jesus to come and eat at his house. And Jesus honored that request and went to his house for a meal. And then in verse 37, we read that the sinful woman knew Jesus was at Simon's house, and she went there with an alabaster box of ointment. And that brings us down to verse 38. And she stood there at his feet, at the feet of Jesus, behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And understand this verse, it's helpful to know something about the customs of meals in the first century Israel. They did not eat at tables like you and I would be familiar with. Uh, The food would be spread on a very low table, and the guests would recline around the table with their heads towards the center and their feet out away from the table. Also, it would not be uncommon for people who were not a part of the meal itself to still be present and to observe and listen and learn as leaders met and discussed important issues of the day. So in verse 38, when this woman approached Jesus and began to weep over and anoint his feet, it was something that was somewhat in the background. And although it may appear strange to us, it would not have been overly disruptive to the meal itself. Unusual, certainly, but maybe not as shocking as it appears to us at first glance. And we see this somewhat in verse 39. When Simon the Pharisee saw this, he responded to it internally. He did not say anything aloud. He did not shoo this woman away. He did not call for servants to take her out of his house. But he did have an internal response to this scene as it was unfolding before him. Look at what he says there in verse 39. He spake within himself, saying, This man, Jesus... If he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. This tells us something about Simon. He may have formerly been undecided about Jesus, but this seems to settle the question for him. In his mind, Jesus cannot be a prophet, because if he were a prophet, he would have known that this woman was a sinner. Now notice what Simon does not say. He doesn't say, if Jesus knew what sort of woman she was, he would stop her, or he would rebuke her, or he would send her out, or he would not have let her begin in the first place. He simply thinks that Jesus doesn't know, he must not know, that this woman is a sinner. His assumption was that if Jesus knew what sort of woman she was, then he would have done this. He would have already rebuked her. He would not have allowed her to touch him or to have anything to do with him. And again, because she was a sinner. Simon's mistake lay in not considering the ministry Jesus came to accomplish. He was considering Jesus as a prophet and not as the Messiah. Luke 19.10 tells us Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. As we saw last week, Jesus is a friend of sinners. 
Jesus was not unaware of this woman's sin. Rather, he came to save sinners. And thus, he did not reject sinners who came to him in faith and repentance. Because Simon had too narrow a view of Jesus' ministry, he not only rejected Jesus as a prophet, but also as the Messiah. There's a warning here for all of us. Beware of subjecting Jesus Christ to your judgment. It's not a specimen to be examined. It's not a list of pros and cons to be weighed against each other, to be compared and then ultimately accepted or rejected on their merit. He is God, and He is to be obeyed. Simon had a standard by which he judged Jesus, and he was wildly wrong. His standard was wrong. His conclusion about Jesus was wrong. And even his own judgment of his own standard was wrong. And we'll see that later on in this text. We've looked at the characters involved here, Jesus, Simon, and this woman. We have seen the setting. Jesus was eating a meal at Simon's house. This woman came and wept over and then anointed Jesus' feet. And then we saw how Simon responded. Now we'll look at what Jesus taught on this occasion. And Jesus began with an illustration. In verse 40, Jesus said, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. And look at how Simon replied. Master, teacher, rabbi, say on. Now internally, he had rejected Jesus. He had just thought, Jesus cannot be a prophet. But with his mouth, he gave deference to our Lord by using this title for respect. Master or teacher. There are many people who honor the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Well, Simon replied, Master, say on. And Jesus gave His illustration or parable in verses 41 and 42. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, He frankly forgave them both. A very simple illustration that Jesus uses here of a creditor and two debtors. Now, one of these debtors has a very significant debt. One owes 50 pence, or 50 denarii, and the other owes 500. The word that's translated here, denarii, it refers to a silver coin that would have been roughly equivalent to one man's wages for a day of labor. And so when you think about that, one man had or would have had to work 50 days to pay off this debt. Another man would have had to work 500 days to pay off his debt. Both of these are significant debts, but certainly one is quite the burden, 10 times more than the other. And this word creditor is not the normal word that's used in the New Testament for a money changer or banker. It's more akin to the word loan shark or extortioner in our modern language. This was someone who charged very high interest on unsecured personal loans. Now put yourself in this position. Imagine you owed several thousand dollars to a loan shark. That would be some pressure. That might make you uncomfortable. But now imagine you owed tens of thousands of dollars to that loan shark. That would probably keep you up at night. It's a dangerous position to be in. And both of the debtors in Jesus' illustration are destitute. They have nothing. They have no ability to pay their debts. The loan has been called, and they are broke. They have nothing to pay. But the creditor, he frankly, he generously, he kindly, he mercifully forgave them both. 
He came for his money, and they said, I don't have it. Now, according to the laws at the time, he could have had them thrown into prison. Depending on the terms of the loan, he may have even been able to sell them as slaves to recover his money. But instead, he forgave their debt. Don't worry about it. It's forgiven. You don't owe me anything. He crossed their names out in his ledger. Their debt was immediately gone. He bore the loss. They were forgiven. It's a beautiful illustration. That's the illustration Jesus gave. And then at the end of verse 42, Jesus asked Simon a question. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Which of these two debtors will love the creditor most? Who will be most thankful to the creditor? The one who was forgiven relatively little or the one who was forgiven much? And what is the answer? It's not a trick question. There's no hidden meaning in this illustration. Obviously, the one who was forgiven the vast sum will be more thankful. And that's the point that Jesus was driving at with this illustration. Well, now look at the answer that Simon gives in verse 43. Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. It's a very tentative answer from Simon. I suppose. What do you mean, you suppose? Unless the man with a great debt was completely ungrateful, certainly he would be more thankful, for he had a far greater debt forgiven. Certainly he would love the creditor more for having forgiven his debt. And our natural sense of justice tells us this. We don't need special divine revelation to know that this is true. That's important for this text because Jesus is going to use Simon's own judgment on this matter to judge Simon's reception of Jesus. Simon, the Pharisee, was not a believer, but even in his natural judgment, he could get this right. And that's what Jesus said at the end of verse 43. Thou hast rightly judged. You're right, Simon. The man who is forgiven more will love more. Jesus used this very simple illustration to make application to both Simon and to this sinful woman and to further reveal himself and his ministry. And we see him make application beginning in verse 44. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon. Remember, they were reclined around this table eating this meal. And to turn to the woman, Jesus would have had to turn away from Simon, but he's still talking to Simon. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Of course he sees the woman. He's been thinking about this. Now look at what Jesus said in verses 44 through 46. I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus compared the hospitality of Simon to the hospitality of this woman. First, the washing of his feet. Simon had not provided water for Jesus to wash his feet. This was a common courtesy of the time. We see many examples of this, passage, or this practice in narrative passages in the Bible. Simon had made no provision for Jesus to wash his feet. But this woman washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
Not only did she make provision for washing Jesus' feet, she actually did it herself. If someone was going to do this task, it was usually reserved for the lowest of servants. It was seen as a humiliating, a humbling task to wash someone else's feet. That's what this woman does. Next we see a kiss of greeting. Kiss of greeting. Simon did not kiss Jesus as was the customary greeting of peace in that culture. This would be similar to someone not shaking your hand or refusing to shake your hand. Have you ever had that happen to you? You go to shake somebody's hand and they they don't want to shake your hand, they avoid it, or they refuse to shake your hand? That's insulting. It can be very offensive depending on the context in which that happens. That's what Simon had done to Jesus. He had not greeted him with a kiss, as was customary. But this woman had kissed Jesus' feet. Jesus said, Since the time I came in, she hath not ceased to kiss my feet. It's a great display of humility in that culture. This is what this woman had done. There was this ongoing display of affection, of reception, and of humility toward Jesus. And finally, an anointing of oil. Although it was not ubiquitous, although it did not always happen, it was not uncommon for hosts to supply oil for guests to anoint themselves with. It was a mark of honor and respect. And Simon had not anointed Jesus' head when Jesus came into his house. Not even with common oil. That's the word that's used there. But this woman had anointed Jesus, and she anointed Jesus' feet. She did not use common oil, but rather ointment. The word here comes from the word for myrrh. This would have been a fragrant ointment, nearer to perfume, far more precious than the common oil. And she did not try to anoint Jesus' head with this, but his feet. Another symbol of humility. At every point where Simon had failed as a host, this woman had shown the greatest deference and courtesy and love toward Jesus. And from this woman's display, Jesus drew a conclusion in verse 47. Look at the beginning of verse 47. Wherefore I say unto thee, he's still talking to Simon, and he says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven. Remember, Simon knew that this woman was a sinner. He had been thinking about this woman and about how terrible of a sinner she was. But nothing had been said about this woman's sin. And if you remember back in verse 39, Simon had thought that if Jesus really were a prophet, then he would know that this woman was a sinner. Here in verse 47, we see that Jesus met that standard of proof. Once again, Simon, he had the wrong standard. He came to the wrong conclusion. And even his judgment based on his own standard was wrong. Jesus knew about this woman's sins. And he knew that her sins were many. But Jesus said, they are forgiven. And Jesus gave his reason for saying this. Why did he say this? He says, to Simon, her sins are forgiven. For she loved much. Now pay careful attention to what Jesus taught here. Jesus did not say that this woman was forgiven because she loved much but rather she loved much because she was forgiven. Remember the illustration that Jesus gave. The debtor who was forgiven much loved much. This woman, because she had been forgiven much, 
because she had been forgiven of her many sins, she had loved much. The love she showed to Jesus demonstrated that she had been forgiven. Fruit of love. Then Jesus spoke directly to the woman. In verse 48, Jesus addressed her directly. He said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. Thy sins are forgiven. It's a public declaration of something that has already happened. This woman was bearing the fruit of faith, the fruit of genuine repentance and forgiveness. The love she demonstrated toward Jesus was evidence that she had been forgiven. And then Jesus publicly declared it there in verse 48. Thy sins are forgiven. And we're not told how this woman responded to Jesus' words, but verse 49 tells us about the response of others who were present at that meal. Look at verse 49. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Who does Jesus think he is? What does he mean to say to this woman that her sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. This is the same thing the scribes and the Pharisees said in Luke 5.21 when Jesus forgave the sins of the man with palsy. Who is Jesus to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Simon the Pharisee had doubted Jesus because he thought Jesus did not know this woman was a sinner. These people doubted Jesus because they did not think he had the authority to declare that her sins had been forgiven. And just as Jesus knew what was in the heart of Simon, he certainly knew what these people were thinking. But Jesus did not address them. Rather, he continued speaking to the woman. And in verse 50, he said to her, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. If there was any question about how this woman was saved, Jesus clarifies it in this verse. He told her, Thy faith hath saved thee. Jesus confirmed to this woman that she was forgiven. Let Simon the Pharisee think what he will. Let the others who were present at this feast murmur and grumble within themselves as they wonder at Christ's authority to forgive sins. None of these things matter to this woman anymore because Jesus said to her, Thy faith hath saved thee. Saved. A child of God. Though despised and doubted and rejected by men, she was forgiven by Jesus. And far better to have God's forgiveness than man's approval. Jesus confirmed to this woman that she was forgiven. Then Jesus commended her faith. What was it that saved her? Jesus said it was her faith. What was the object of her faith? We see clearly from this passage that the object of her faith was Jesus. She had sought him out and came to him with tears and humility. God's great forgiveness led to this woman's great love for Jesus. And in her great love, she had ministered to him. She worshipped him. That's really what's going on in this passage. Simon and his other guests, even Jesus, had gathered for a meal. But this woman, motivated by her love for Jesus, she came to worship. That's what she did. In this passage, we see this chain of faith, forgiveness, love, and worship. True faith will always lead to true worship, to glorifying God. And God exalts and honors faith because faith leads us to exalt and honor God. So Jesus commended this woman's faith. And finally, Jesus comforted this woman. He told her, go in peace. 
This woman had only known bondage and guilt in her sin, but now she was comforted with peace from her Savior. She no longer needed to be disturbed by her past sins. They were forgiven. Though men may hold them against her, God would not hold them against her. Though Satan may use them to accuse her conscience, she could say they are forgiven by God. She no longer needed to be disturbed by the reproaches and rejection of others, for God had accepted her, forgiven her, and promised her peace. She could go out and live the life that God put before her, faithfully serving God in it. And when her life on earth was done, she could pass into eternal peace. Jesus comforted this woman and said to her, Go in peace. Go in peace. I titled this sermon, Jesus Saves a Sinful Woman. And in this passage, the power of God and the grace of God are revealed in the salvation of this sinful woman. As we conclude, I want us to look back at verse 47. In the first half of that verse, Jesus said to Simon, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. And we've already studied that portion of this verse. But now look at the rest of the verse. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. As we make application from this text to ourselves, we need to ask three questions. And the first question we need to ask ourselves is, do I love Jesus? Maybe your honest answer this morning is no. I do not love Jesus. Maybe you're like Simon in this text, unconverted, unbelieving, unloving. You've never seen yourself as a sinner? You've never seen your need for a Savior. Why would you love, truly love, Jesus? You have no need for Jesus. If you have no true love for Jesus, it's a clear indication that you are not converted. Very simply, I'll say to you the same thing Jesus preached during His earthly ministry. Repent ye and believe the Gospel. Do you love Jesus? The second question we need to ask as we make application to ourselves is, do I love Jesus as much as I should? Shake your head no. You don't love Jesus as much as you should. I don't love Jesus as much as I should. We all come woefully short. And this leads us to the third and final question as we make application. How can I love Jesus more? How are we to grow in our love of Jesus Christ our Savior. Look again at the words of Jesus in verse 47. Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. This woman's love for Jesus was the fruit of her faith springing up out of the forgiveness she had received from God. Her great sins had been forgiven, and this led to her great love for Jesus. And so it is for you and I. Do you want to grow in your love of Jesus Christ? Grow in your knowledge about Him. Grow in your understanding of God's perfect holiness, of His justice, of His righteousness as He is revealed in Scripture. Grow in your understanding of man as Scripture reveals our nature. See your sin as God sees it, as an affront to His holiness, as betrayal, as treason. And the more that we grow in a biblical view of God's holiness, 
and of our own sin, the more we will understand how much we have been forgiven and the more we will love and worship our Savior. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank You for Your grace. Thank You, Lord, that You are long-suffering. And every day You suffer this sinful world to go on as You are bringing people into salvation through Jesus Christ, through the ministry of the Word and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that You would work through Your Word this morning here. We pray if there's anyone here who is unconverted, who is not a Christian, who has never been born again, we pray, Lord, that You would bring conviction from Your Word this morning. Show them that they are not in this illustration that Jesus used, they are not the debtor who owes 50, but rather they are the debtor who owes 500. An insurmountable debt, a debt we can never pay. We're destitute. We need you. May we look to you in faith for salvation. Do a work of grace, we pray, Lord. Lord, we pray as believers that we would look at this text and we would be humbled as we consider the salvation you have brought that we had an insurmountable debt that all of eternity could not account for. And yet you forgave it. You bore the loss. You took it upon yourself. And you gave us all the riches in Christ Jesus. Lord, what an incredible thing salvation is. And Lord, as we dwell upon your holiness, as we dwell upon the depth of our sin that has been forgiven in Jesus Christ, May we grow in our love for you, in our adoration of you, in our worship of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.